This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. It's Mayor's Monday on WHMP, and we have back with us today the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us again today. We really appreciate your time, and congratulations. I think we are arriving at the one-year anniversary of your having been sworn in as mayor of Holyoke, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me back. I'd like to ask you, uh, Mayor, if we could focus for a bit this morning on the issue of economic development in Holyoke. And let me start with what was a front page article in last week's, uh, one of last week's editions of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and that is the Computer Center in Holyoke. And the article talked about how the major universities in, uh, in Massachusetts were expanding. I think it was $5 million expansion of the Computer Center mm-hmm. in Holyoke. And I'm wondering, well, frankly, because when, when this was first announced, when uh, Alex Morse was mayor and the initial investment was made, it seemed like a uh, quite a big deal in terms of economic development. But then as I, I and others dug into it deeper, uh, the actual investment, the capital investment in Holyoke, that was of some significance, but it really didn't seem to make a big difference in terms of jobs and economic development in that part of the city. So I would appreciate your perspective. Please. I, I, you know, Bill, my perspective is this. The facility, economic development is one part of the discussion, but what folks need to understand is that this institution is solving problems of the world. These types of institutions only exist in major cities like Boston, like New York City, and here in Western Massachusetts, the little city of Holyoke of 40,000 people, we have this incredible um, institution that is doing the type of scientific research that is gonna help uh, thinkers across the globe facilitate decisions, investments, uh, as we try to progress the economy, our global uh, position, our global economy. And the reason why it's here, it's not because, um, uh, it's not because the city, you know, hey, look, here's Holyoke, let's just go there because we want to, or because, or whatever the case may be. It's because of our, um, our low energy rates and our access to um, our ability, you know, to offer hydropower. The, the, the institution, I think their their annual electric bill um, is about a million dollars um, a year, and it's a, it's a lot of money. It sounds like a lot, and it is a lot of money. But because um, uh, it's benefiting from hydropower, um, uh, you know, that's if it was anywhere else, it cost much more. Um, so I think, you know, I think. I'm happy to embrace this in our community that that's happening here, that that level of research is being done here. There is some impact that people don't see, um, uh, uh, you know, jobs that it does offer secondary impacts. Um, but, you know, we have to, in my opinion, go beyond just looking at this as an economic development opportunity and start respecting it for what it is. Uh, this amazing organization that is contributing to the growth of how we do things in the world. In terms of one last question on this computer center, in terms of number of jobs in Holyoke, it's it's this is not a job development uh, announcement, as I understand it, or do I have that wrong? I yeah, I wouldn't look at it that way. I mean, but there are jobs because there's contractors that are going to get procured. Um, you know, electricians and 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 other um, folks um, that have specialized services. But as far as, you know, off the street, hey, I need a job. No, it, I, it's not one of those. Um, I, but, you know, we you're talking about uh, a large scale investment that, and it's a, it's a, it is a beautiful facility. It contributes to the, the ecosystem of what we're trying to build here in the city of Holyoke. But I, I certainly wouldn't look at it as something that, uh, you know, saves Holyoke as far as jobs, but instead just another piece to the puzzle, whether if it's a big one or a small one, depending on the individual perspective on what this institution does. Uh, but it's certainly a good one he, that's here within the borders of our city. 
Uh, Mayor Garcia, why we are talking about uh, economic development, and particularly on this, your one-year anniversary, becoming uh, the mayor of Holyoke, I'm wondering if we could uh, focus for a moment on uh, arts and culture in the city, which is, of course, a potential as we come, hopefully come out of COVID, uh, a potential economic driver for, for the city. And there are two uh, projects that have been much in the news. One is the Victory Theater Project. The other is Gateway City Arts. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what the future of those two projects, the extent you can share with us, uh, are and what we can anticipate in the next year. Yeah, so, you know, we we continue to try to focus on elevating arts and culture, but it's not just arts and culture. Actually, it's, it's you know, when we think about these projects, we're not solely focusing on on uh, uh, arts and cultures, although that's the, 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 the goal of, of what these things do. Uh, but instead, the importance of its integration to uh, the community. So Gateway City Arts, for example, um, you know, there's a gap that we're trying to cover there. The state recently announced uh, support of an infusion of 750000 to go toward that gap. I'm about to announce in a few short weeks uh, uh, my own um, uh, infusion of support to continue to contribute to that gap. And, you know, we're talking about what these organize it what what victory can offer to the greater community as far as you know uh, education as far as um, access to different resources and, and programs um, uh, it's it, it certainly is going to be uh, again another piece to the puzzle that contributes to the the greater ecosystem here um, uh, you know we tell folks that you know it's been a long run 20 years um, that the Victory Theater has been doing their uh, capital fundraising campaign. Um, and it usually takes about 20 years before you see projects like this come to fruition. So I've, I like to say that they're actually on, on target, but they're also in the ninth inning. Um, and so there's a clear path and what we need to do to close that gap. And we're looking forward to leverage that to boost um, what this organization can do for the greater community while you know, contributing to our efforts to expanding arts and, and culture. Then you got Gateway City Arts on Ray Street, another fantastic venue, another fantastic investment that happened in the city, particularly that area that's been, since I was growing up, was really a dead zone. There was nothing there. And now it's this safe um, and walkable space where people can go and, and um, uh, participate in, in whatever activities that are coming out of there. Uh, the owners there are, are very optimistic. I'm, I remain optimistic in um, the, the future of what they want to achieve there. Um, and I'm just very much looking forward to offer them any kind of support that I can so that they succeed with um, what they do there on Ray Street. Yeah, COVID was really uh, problematic for the Gateway City Arts. For, for a lot of people. Yes, for sure. Let me ask you this, Mayor. Uh, with regard to the Victory Theater project, which, as you point out, has been uh, in the news on and off and fundraising going on for many, many years, you say that this project, in terms of fundraising, is in the ninth inning. Two questions about that. First, you remind our listeners where the Victory Theater is, and in terms of the big picture, what is it uh, anticipated that it will be used for in terms of productions? Because it is a beautiful old building uh, with this enormous potential for restoration. So tell us a bit more about that, if you would, please. Well, the challenging thing is that the target keeps moving. Um, if, if 20 years ago, they, they've raised and, and, and have been able to secure commitments of over $30 million. And 20 years ago, that was their target. So, you know, to say the least, they've hit their target. The problem is the target moved. Um, and so, you know, as with inflation, um, costs continuing to rise, um, you know, they have currently about a, I want to say about a $15 million gap. Sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but there is a clear path that we're working on that's going to help us close that gap. Um, we did put together a strike team. My wife, Stephanie Garcia, chairs that strike team, which is just community residents that are going to elevate um, uh, 
uh, elevate the, the the local support for this project and um, do some fundraising efforts toward that gap. Um, we went on a trip to Schenectady, New York to tour Proctor's. We even saw a Broadway show, Aladdin. Um, and uh, Phil, who's um, the president over there of Proctor's, um, you know, it was really an eye-opening um, experience that offered a lot of fresh perspective and new hope into what what the Victory Theater can accomplish in Holyoke. Schenectady, when I listened to its history and the challenges they went through and the skepticism they had to overcome, very, very similar to that of Holyoke. And so looking at what it where it is today and the impact it has had in the city's downtown, um, uh, you know, just made us all feel that much more hopeful to know that this is indeed possible. Um, so it's not impossible. Uh, but yeah, as far as that gap is concerned, we, there's a, um, a strategy at play that uh, people that I'm mobilizing, I am in full support of this project. I feel like this project needs to happen. Um, you know, and I don't want to lead people down a, a wrong path. I'm not saying that this is going to save downtown Holyoke, but it's going to strengthen um, our economic position downtown and offer an impact that, you know, we haven't seen in a long time. Right. It reminds me of the place and the position of the Academy of Music here in Northampton, <clears throat> which is uh, not the only thing in downtown Northampton, but it certainly adds a lot to the economic vibrancy of the city. And I'm wondering whether this project in Holyoke, you see this as being a venue for music, for plays, for uh, other kinds of community events. And uh, well, what's interesting about this space is that apparently, from what I hear, it's the largest of its kind in Western Mass. To because I mean, we do have smaller theaters here and there. Number one, the seating capacity um, uh, is is large. And also number two, the size of the stage. Um, sometimes, depending on the show, it requires a great deal of space. So this, the, the capacity that the stage can hold puts us in a much more competitive position uh, when it comes to uh, offering um, theaters and shows and, and programs. Um, and you know, there's a consultant that put together a, a feasibility study that, sh that shows a heat map and where people are spending their money. And, and that also um, ha holds promising indicators and reasons why people would come here um, to Hoyoke to enjoy a show at the Victory. Uh, but yeah, it's also gonna have space to rent for venues, whether, you know, birthday parties and weddings, we don't have a lot of that downtown uh, meeting spaces. Um, uh, you know, uh, especially with my wife on the committee and, and, and where my heart is, it has certainly elevated discussions um, with the team there at the Victory about its commitment and partnerships it needs to have with local organizations and the school district. Um, and, and not to mention, you know, there is a, um, uh, at risk, you know, population, low income population, and we need to be sure that there's access, um, to, um, this building, uh, you know, no matter what your economic status might be here in the city. Um, so, you know, looking at what Proctor's has done in Schenectady, the programming, the relationship they have with their school districts and with other youth organizations and just seeing their space being used for all sorts of um, different activities, you know, it's, that's, that's what we want to see. We don't want just theater, you know, happening one time a month or every other month and then the space is not being used at all. It's, it needs to be um, diverse as far as its usage is concerned so that it truly is a community institution. We are speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. We're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we're going to talk about schools and the oversight. We're also going to talk about the police and what effect the election of a new governor in Massachusetts may mean for Holyoke. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a 
a solid dental plan? That's probably a good idea, too. Get the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. The music of John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane, made new by rising young jazz lioness Lakeisha Benjamin. Lakeisha Benjamin, a charismatic and dynamic young jazz sax player, brings her band to UMass November 17th. Benjamin's new album, Pursuance, The Coltrane's, is an intergenerational masterwork, taking you on a journey through the lineage of jazz. Lakeisha Benjamin infuses the jazz tradition with touches of hip-hop and soul, producing soaring sonic adventures and dance floor-worthy rhythms and grooves. For tickets, UMass Fine Arts Center website. Don't miss this exciting exploration of the living art form that is jazz. The Lakeisha Benjamin Quartet, Thursday, November 17th, 7.30, Bowker Auditorium at UMass. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than pixels to know what it actually feels like? Maybe you could just lay on the screen and... Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Come to Talon Furniture and lay down on a Therapeutic. I'll leave you alone. You can see how you are together. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. I've been to the factory in Brockton. Yes, they're made by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Talon delivers and sets it up. We don't just drop a big burrito on your doorstep. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. Join Business West on December 8th at the Sheraton Springfield for the Women of Impact Awards, celebrating LaToya Bosworth, Sister Mary Caritas, Jody Falk, Annika Lopez, Lori Raymakers, Hilda Roke, Ashley Sullivan, Aylin Tierney. Visit businesswest.com to meet this year's honorees and to reserve tickets. Business West's Women of Impact is sponsored by Country Bank, Tommy Carr Auto Group, Comcast Business, Granite State Development, and Smith Executive Education. Join Business West in celebrating the 2022 Women of Impact. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. It is Mayor's Monday, and we continue our conversation with the Mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. We have been talking about economic development. I'd like to ask you, Mayor, since we're talking about money, if there is money available from the federal government any longer, ARPA money or the like, that is going to be used and is available to Holyoke. Tell us about that, if you would, please. Yeah, we have another uh, tranche of ARPA funds. It's about $17 million total that we're looking forward to disseminate. Uh, there is a statement of interest that's out there. Organizations can apply for, um, put in their project ideas or funding requests. Uh, what we're doing here internally is, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, we've done a, a series of things. We've done a business survey. We've done a community survey um, where we, we have these statement of interests out there to, you know, try to keep our finger on the pulse of what the needs are, where monies should be invested. Um, and so that statement of interest is due Friday. What we'll do here internally is, you know, collect that, uh, you know, work with these organizations and trying to strengthen their application, um, their eligibility, and making sure that they're hitting uh, strategic objectives and targets that we're looking for. And then, uh, uh, then thereafter, an actual application portal will open up where people can apply for, um, for this funding. 17 million, sounds like a lot. Yeah, it does. It, it is a lot. But more often than never, what we experience is you get more requests than when you have. Um, so it becomes competitive. Let me ask you this, Mayor. Uh, since we were talking about the Victory Theater in the first segment, is it possible that any of this money could be used for that project? <laughs> what I mean, Billy. Sorry. sorry. So, uh, I, have I just gone, just gone wandering down a path <laughs> I don't want to be on? 
No, you, it's a great path to be on. There is a, a commitment we'll be announcing soon. Um, it, you know, we do have a community driven process that we've set up in our management plan. Um, you know, uh, once we solicit ideas and requests, um, our Office of Community Development goes down and makes recommendations. We have a local advisory committee that makes their own recommendations. We have a subcommittee of the council that makes their recommendations. And then the full body of the council makes recommendations. The, the decision's ultimately the mayor's decision. Um, I do have a commitment that I wanna see Victory uh, uh, Theater supported on, and, and I wanna be sure that it goes through this process and, and um, win the same amount of uh, uh, commitment from these other stakeholders. Uh, but yes, you're thinking in the right, you know, we, that we want to leverage this just as another tool to help close that gap. Absolutely. Uh, Mayor, I'd like to go back to something we were talking about last time you were on the show. And it was obviously about a month ago, and it was prior to the elections. We've now had the elections. And I'm wondering uh, what the election results. By the way, congratulations on the show last month. You supported uh, question one, question four, uh, the fair share amendment, as well as the uh, Work and Family Mobility Act, questions one and four, respectively, and they both carried Holyoke uh, significantly, so congratulations on that. I would like to know uh, what the elections mean, what the elections of uh, Governor Healy may mean for Holyoke, in your judgment. Look, I think a Governor, uh, 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 governor Healy is a big win, not just for Holyoke, for, but for Massachusetts. You say congratulations uh, to me, but you know, it doesn't surprise me because the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you know, I've always felt like we've led, um, uh, you know, we, we take the lead in a lot of uh, issues uh, across the country. Um, and she's, you know, I, I feel really good to know that we have a governor in there that um, uh, is very strategic and focused and, and, and for the greater good for, for everybody um, around environmental issues, around equity and social justice issues. Um, she certainly uh, embodies all of that and, and I'm happy to support her. For Holyoke specifically, she committed to um, transitioning schools back to local control. I don't expect that to happen tomorrow. Uh, it certainly is a, a, a complex process for sure, but I'm just happy to know that um, we have a governor who has committed to that process and I'm certainly looking forward to continuing to have that conversation because it, it is a priority here in the city um, to be sure that we have um, uh, government that's, um, you know, managed by the people for the people. The school system in Holyoke has been under state receivership for a long time now. And I'm wondering whether or not there are benchmarks that were established or have been established for when the transition back to local control and control by the Holyoke School Committee would take effect and whether there's any measurements that we can say they have been met or they haven't been met. Uh, what's the story on that? That's where it's great, Bill, because, you know, and I try and, you know, has the state done anything different than what we could have done here locally um, to improve outcomes? Um, no, you know, I, and, and that's currently the debate at a lot of tables today. You know, what did the state do differently that we couldn't do? And, and you know, they're going to be transitioning local trucks. They realize that there, there isn't anything that they can do differently or whatever the case. You know, I think it's been a necessary pivot. Um, you know, I don't, when, when receivership comes into play in any community, whether if it's schools or municipality, it's not at all the state being in the in my personal opinion, although other folks may differ, the state's not in the business of taking over things, but it's a, a necessary um, uh, strategy when things aren't going the way that it probably should be. And uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of that is driven by uh, divide when, when the politics in the community are not aligned um, to the point where people are working together for the greater good. When, when that's an issue, it, it, you know, things can get mucky. Um, I, you know, I think Hoyoke was in an interesting um, uh, point in, in, in the city's history that I think, you know, by receivership coming in, it just kind of allowed our community to retreat and rethink things. Um, 
and that's happened. And there has been a lot of positive changes internally within the school district that I think um, is certainly gonna add benefit when that transition comes. I wanna not unravel what they've started. I wanna take that and, and continue to build. Um, uh, as far as um, control of the school board, that we have been doing what's called charting the course. Uh, you know, we have a fairly new school board that wasn't around when we were in local control. So there's a lot of there's a lot of practices that this current board is unfamiliar with when it comes to responsibility of a board and relationships between the board and the administration. And so right now the benchmark for all of us is to learn what local control means and start putting that into practice um, uh, before they just give it over to us and, 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 and we don't know how to navigate um, decisions uh, that require um, um, you know, that level of uh, support from the board. Um, but for the most part, you know, the conversations with this current board, conversations I've been having with representatives and people from the state, people know that that is our priority. Although we are committed to the process, we're not coming from the top down saying, give this to us now or else. We're here to, you know, we're, we, we thank the state's um, investments in the state's position in our, in our, in our district and are supportive um, of what they're trying to do. And the state has been very welcoming to our own desires to regain control. So those, those conversations are very positive and, ma and make me feel good that this is something that we can probably see within two years. Really? Wow. I was about very optimistic. Very <laughs> optimistic. Well, that, that's really, well, okay. In the world of optimism, how about we finish with one last question? Uh, always uh, on our mind in, uh, in every community is the question of public safety. And any thoughts about how uh, Holyoke has responded to uh, public safety issues that have come up in the city in the last few months? So the, the city of Holyoke has a history of um, being proactive to responding all, to all sorts of public safety issues. Because you got to understand, Holyoke, as long as I've been living here, has always been a city of compassion. Um, my family benefited from Holyoke's compassion uh, growing up. Uh, and that level of compassion comes with issues and challenges. And, uh, you know, uh, Holyoke, you know, I try to remind people that we can't allow these challenges make us lose sight of who we are as Holyokers, because we've been a city for people who are down and out on their luck. Um, and uh, also, practices are evolving to how we respond to those issues. Um, and Holyoke for the last few years, even before I became mayor, has been strategically pivoting in areas as far as practices are concerned. And several departments, the police department, our relationships with local organizations that are boots in the ground doing quality of life work, um, to be sure that you know some of these challenges, if, if, if as we're responding to these issues, you know, um, that, that we're responding in a way that um, helps de-escalate and helps bridge uh, gaps and, and strengthen people's, um, you know, strengthen their, their ability to, 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 to navigate a challenge that the individual might be going through. Um, uh, so as far as, you know, public safety, we continue to do what we can in those areas, plus some. So um every so often new ideas are shared and and uh you know i'm thankful to have a team here at city hall board of health um uh, to our building department to our police department to our fire department a team that is committed to um uh, thinking creatively thinking strategically um and how we respond to any of these issues because it's not only safety issues on the street right it's not only the individual engaging in a, in a specific behavior. You're talking about safety and in, in property ownership, um, uh, safety on uh, whether if it's an economic challenge of a family and a household, um, uh, food insecurity type safety, there's different levels of it. And we have a, a city that 
for many years um, is dedicated to looking at it at every angle and doing proactive stuff. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Holyoke's Mayor Joshua Garcia. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. Can't wait to continue this conversation with you next month, Mayor. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A UMass Amherst student is alleging racial profiling by a PVTA bus driver after an altercation that led to the bus driver calling UMass police. Kalina Nurse, a senior in the Eisenberg School of Management, was told to get off the bus to allow others to board after agreeing to throw away a lemonade she was told she could not bring on the bus. The driver stopped the bus for 20 minutes to wait for police to arrive. A spokesperson for PVTA said nurse had used derogatory and threatening language and the driver had acted appropriately in calling the police. UMass Chancellor Subaswamy issued a statement about the incident saying school officials would look into the police officer's conduct but that the school does not operate the bus route and has no authority over the PVTA. The chief trial counsel for the Northwestern District Attorney's Office has been sworn in as a Superior Court judge. The Gazette reports Jeremy Bucci was sworn in November 2nd and will reportedly undergo at least a couple of weeks of training. Bucci took his job with the Northwestern District Attorney's Office in 2011 and had previously worked in the appellate unit for the Suffolk County DA's office. Bucci, who lives in Deerfield, grew up in Irving and graduated from Turner's Falls High School before attending UMass Amherst and Suffolk University Law School. And drivers in East Hampton should expect some delays this week. There will be partial lane closures due to road work starting today. According to East Hampton Police Department, between the hours of 7 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday, there will be road closures in several locations, including 47 Cottage Street, Route 141, and partial closure on Northampton Street near the old Tasty Top, which will be reduced to one lane. For today, mostly sunny, breezy, and cool. Highs 42 to 46. Tonight, mostly clear and cold. Overnight lows 18 to 24. And the outlook for Tuesday, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. Highs in the lower 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Reshivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los demócratas mantuvieron el control del Senado el sábado, rechazando los esfuerzos republicanos por retomar la Cámara y dificultándoles frustrar la agenda del presidente Joe Biden. El destino de la Cámara aún era incierto, ya que el partido republicano lucha por reunir una pequeña mayoría allí. La victoria de la senadora Catherine Cortés Masto en Nevada dio a los demócratas los 50 escaños que necesitaban para conservar el Senado. Su victoria refleja la sorprendente fuerza de los demócratas en los Estados Unidos este año electoral. El control demócrata del Senado garantiza un proceso más fluido para los nombramientos del gabinete y las elecciones judiciales de Biden, incluidas las posibles vacantes en la Corte Suprema. El partido también mantendrá el control sobre los comités y tendrá el poder de realizar investigaciones o supervisar la administración de Biden y podrá rechazar la legislación enviada por la Cámara de Representantes si el Partido Republicano gana esa Cámara. En otras informaciones, el plan del presidente Biden para borrar las deudas de préstamos estudiantiles federales para decenas de millones de prestatarios chocó contra un muro legal el jueves, cuando un juez del Tribunal de Distrito de Estados Unidos en Texas lo calificó de ilegal y anuló el programa de alivio de la deuda. El gobierno federal apeló rápidamente la decisión que se tomó solo unas semanas antes de que se reanuden los pagos de préstamos estudiantiles en enero. En el fallo del jueves, el juez Mark Pittman, designado por el expresidente Donald Trump, escribió que el programa programa era una usurpación total de la autoridad del Congreso por parte del Poder Ejecutivo. Pittman rechazó los argumentos de la administración de Biden de que, en una ley conocida como la ley Heroes, el Congreso ya le había dado al presidente el poder de borrar las deudas de préstamos estudiantiles en un momento de emergencia nacional y que la pandemia de COVID-19 es una de esas emergencias. El proceso de apelación podría llevar semanas, dejando a los prestatarios en el limbo. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Hey. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with our segment hosts, Professor Carly Tartikoff and the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, who have with them and us today a very special guest. Let me turn the microphone over to Carly Tartikoff. The honor and pleasure of the introduction is yours. Carly. Hi, this is an honor and pleasure. I'm here to introduce Irma, Dr. Irma McLaren. 
She's a distinguished alumni, award-winning writer, founder of the Irma McLaren Black Feminist Archive. It's located in the Robert S. Cox Special Collection and University Archives Research Center at UMass. So she has lots more credentials. Uh, we wouldn't have time to list them all. But what I'd like to do is start by telling us, Irma, and this may seem like a simple question to you, but it's not to a lot of other people. What is an archive? That's a good question. Uh, generally, it is an assemblage of materials um, often found in libraries. Uh, museums collect artifacts, which also are archival things. And often it is a window onto the past for us. So it can be correspondence, it can be diaries, journals, it can be old newspaper clippings, it can be photographs, it can be manuscripts that are published, unpublished papers. And what we're trying to do is understand how by looking at a particular individual's life, we understand what was happening at a particular moment in time. Um, I think that's the, the short way of answering it. Well, what distinguishes a Black feminist archive from another archive? I think the, the way to answer that is to say that historically, archives have been the domain of the wealthy, people who were literate, people who had resources, and people like myself and other Black people were excluded, unless we were famous. If we were famous, then we might our materials might appear in an archive. But historically, that has not been the case. There's been what is called archival silences that have kept us from being preserved. And I think it's important to understand that there's a moment in time in which it was illegal to teach Black people to read and write. And therefore, the documentation of what our lives were like have only been collected in things like the slave narratives where people went back and recorded people who remembered slavery. Uh, occasionally you would find some folks who did gain literacy, people like Frederick Douglass, Olana Equinal, um, Harriet, um, oh, um, I'm trying to remember the name, but uh, the woman who um, hid in, in an attic for 13 years mm -hmm. Uh, did write her own um, slave narrative. And so we have some understanding. My purpose in, in building this archive is to take the present moment, at least the, the, the scope, the arc of my life, which is now 70 years, and to make sure that people have an understanding of what it was like for someone like myself who grew up in inner city Chicago, whose mother was on welfare, uh, who grew up in the projects of the, the housing projects of Chicago, who then went on to become a university president at Shaw University, who went on to become a distinguished alumni at UMass. And those stories are often not told if we're not big enough, if we're not a marquee, if we're not an Angela Davis or an Alice Walker. So I'm actually in the business of not only archiving my own life, but collecting the materials about Black women's lives, including yourself, Dr. Carly Tartikoff. Dr. McCorn, Professor McCorn, let me ask you this. In, can you give us a big, greater sense of what is in the archive at UMass Amherst? I, know, I assume it's available to scholars, but who else can see the material? So what's there and who can access it? So at this point, the archive is in the process of development. I've shipped them 107 boxes of material, and those materials will eventually be, be digitized. Right now, there are only two, um, two collections, two papers that are online, those of Carolyn Martin Shaw, who retired from UC Santa Cruz, who's a black anthropologist, and Larry Paris, who was one of the architects of alternative education. He was one of the first people to put an alternative high school like in a bowling alley back in the 1970s. And my connection to him 
is that he was the director of the Yale Summer High School, which I participated in at the age of 16 in 1968. Mm -hmm. So as we receive materials, we have the papers of Z. Edgel, who is the, the only internationally published author from Belize, Central America, where I did my field work. So as we get these materials, they are going to be put online and we are in the process of collecting. So it is a it is a archive that is in process. It is still being developed and built. And as we get materials, it will be activated um, as they come in. Dr. McLaurin, Jacqueline Smith Crooks here. Um, yes. I have a question here that comes to mind as I think back to the seventies and so forth and so on when I was very involved. How do we incorporate the 2022 um, spirit, uh, the zeitgeist of this time, opening our minds and our lives to critical thinking? Do you see a tie? Some people call it critical race theory or critical fear theory or whatever you want. How, how do you or do you think that that can be tied easily into this conversation? Well, I, you mean in terms of the archive? Yes. Well, I think, I think what makes the Black Feminist Archive important at this moment is exactly what you talked about. We are living in a time of erasure. There is a deliberate attempt, both legislatively, politically, and educationally, to erase certain aspects of information. Uh, what you know, critical race theory was never taught in K through 12. So the idea that we don't need to have it there is is kind of a misnomer. It's what uh, Agatha Christie would call a red herring. It misdirects us from the real issue, which is that there has been since the 60s efforts on the part of Black Americans in particular, but Latinos, Indigenous people, to get our our vision, our version of history, our truths into educational curriculum and there has been you know we've been successful the umass um du bois wb du bois department of afro-american studies was founded in 1972 so it has celebrated 50 years and i think the first black studies program was 1971 so from the time that we have been uh freed from slavery to the 1970s there's never been at white institutions curriculum about African-Americans, indigenous people, Latino people in there. And people don't realize that almost a decade ago, the state of Arizona actually banned and made it illegal to teach about Chicano history. So this, mo this, this idea of erasing history is not new, but it gained momentum under the 45th who issued an executive order that said it was illegal for anyone working in the federal government to basically utilize anything of what they're calling critical race theory. But it was anything that had to do with diversity, anything that had to do with multiculturalism. They wanted to erase that and make it illegal. And this was not just for federal employees. The executive order extended to anyone who had a federal contract with the federal government. So they were trying to, you know, you could call it thought police. They were now saying, we will decide what people can know and not know. Now moving forward, what that means is that if people cannot get this content, this information in sort of educational settings, then places like archives become critically important because they are the repositories of primary material where people can get information directly from the sources. So if I'm writing about what it was like to grow up in inner city Chicago in the 1960s, I mean, the 1950s, I am you know, a, a segregationist baby. I was born during segregation. And so I went to segregated schools. I know what that experience is like. An archive will give people a window onto understanding that experience even if it's not taught in schools. We are, excuse me, speaking with Professor Irma McLaurin, the distinguished alum at UMass and the award-winning writer and the founder of the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive at UMass Amherst. We'll be back with more of Black in the Valley right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
when it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. But what are we drinking in the wine bunker today? Random white wine. Yes. All right. Hello, I'm Random White Guy, and I'm going to be drinking Random White Wine. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the Wine Snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The first one here is the uh, Gomez Cruzado from the Haro region of Rioja, and this is a white wine. Now, most people might be familiar with Viora, but this is also blended with 25% Tempranillo Blanco. I always forget that that's even a thing. Don't we all? The first sip almost seems puckering dry, but it really rounds out. A couple more sips into it, it and it is lush and creamy. But it's not so creamy without acid. There's like a, there is yeah. a little bit of acid yeah, in there. It's when it's too creamy, I get really bored, and yeah. it's like what they call flabby, but with the acid, it braces it, and it makes it really Yeah, this, this I want like scallops. <laughs> you mean scallops? I don't care. I want them. I care. Scallops. There we go. Thank you. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley segment with our segment host, Professor Kari Tartikoff, and the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, and our very special guest today, Dr. Irma McLaurin, who is a UMass Distinguished Alum and award-winning writer and the founder, most importantly for our conversation today, of the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive at the UMass Amherst. Let me turn the microphone back over to the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Jacqueline. Thank you, Bill. Uh, as an agent of change, Dr. McLaurin, um, you, you, have, you started this archive here at UMass, and you started the Africana Women's Studies Program at Bennett College. Uh, are you thinking in terms of tying those two together? Well, I think they're already tied together through my own experience, but even as a creative writer, I have an MFA in English and a PhD in anthropology, what links those two disciplines is narrative. Narrative is both the story we tell about our experience, our cultural heritage, but it is also the cognitive way that we make sense of the world. So for me, narrative as writing a poem, whereas narrative as creating an Africana women's studies program where women learn about the stories of black women and then creating an archive in which those stories are preserved not only for the present moment but the future generation, it's all tied together. And so for me, it's a line of continuity. Where does that line go next? The line goes next into getting more people to, to put their stuff into the archive. Believe it or not, as I talk to amazing black women 
who are activists, who are artists, who are professors, who are former school teachers, when I say, what are you going to do with your stuff? They look at me and go, oh, I didn't think it was that important. And so my job now is to carry the message that what black women do is very much important and we need to preserve it. Correct. Carly? Well, thank you, Irma, for coming and sharing and helping us to find another platform where we can shine as black women. Yes. And I would say that we all carry an archive inside of us that needs to be preserved. And that's my mission. And I would like to ask you to tell us how we can get in touch with you or the archives so we can contribute to it. Yes. Uh, they have a Minuteman fund page at UMass. It's bit.ly slash blk. F-E-M minute, M-I-N-U-T-E. So black, B-L-K, F-E-M, M-I-N-U-T-E. That will take you to the, the funding page. And if you want more information, you can contact me at blackfeministarchive at gmail.com. Uh, Are there other um, events coming up? We are in the process of building a landing page on the website at UMass. I have, uh, there's information about the archive on my own website, which is irmamclaurin.com. So if people want to find information, but really, if you just Google Black Feminist Archive, we pop up. There have been stories mm -hmm. written about me in the daily, in the Massachusetts Collegian, in Ms. Magazine. Uh, you know, uh, there's a site, Black Women's Podcast, in which my my discussion of the Black Feminist Archive is the first uh, podcast in there. So there's lots of information. Just Google Black Feminist Archive and we'll pop up. There's also 397 of my black and white photos that have been digitized by UMass and Credo. They're photos of James Baldwin, Tony Cade Bambara, uh, Sonia Sanchez, just okay. to give an example. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Carly Tartikoff. Thank you very much. Thank you, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks, and thank you, Dr. and Professor Irma McLaurin, who is, as we noted, the founder of the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive at UMass Amherst, and to point out that the UMass Archive uh, is one of, and becoming increasingly one of the most distinguished archives in the country in university research facilities. So congratulations on what you've done and thank you for doing what you have done in terms of creating this archive. Dr. Irma McCorn, we are in your debt. Want to support the Food Bank of Western Mass, but don't want to do any of that annoying marching? You're in luck. It's the return of Monty's Mixed Bag. Make a $100 donation, enough for 400 meals, and you'll walk away with some delicious wines thanks to Ruby Wines, some delicious beer thanks to Berkshire Brewing, some Headwater Cider, some Dean's Beans Coffee, candy Live from Richardson's Candy Kitchen.